basically the teenage brain is fully formed in teenage years but it lacks complexity and from the age of adolescence onward it's just gaining in complexity all the time until the 20s and so if you watch films like perhaps certainly <laughs> Romeo and Juliet is Shakespeare so I have no doubt has great depth it will create depth in the teenage and they desperately need it they desperately need it because when you stand back and you realize what they have to actually make come to terms with in their teenage years they have to come to terms with the fact that we're in this world nobody knows why we're here nobody knows where we're going nobody knows what happened before i was born or when i die nobody actually knows what the point of all this is and it's extremely unfair some people seem to sail through it and some people have a very easy time. Some people are incredibly good looking and clever and uh, popular and some people are incredibly ugly and stupid and unpopular. And uh, there you go. Sit with that. Off you go. Make sense of that. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Ricky Orpike and joining me once again is the childlike Jonathan Astro. Um, yeah, I, hello, Ricky. I think that's a, a compliment in there. I think what you're saying is that I'm young at heart. Definitely. Now, do you believe the children are our future? Um, they are, but I tell you what, uh, oh, what's what's the deal with all this TikTok, eh? You know, <laughs> <laughs> you don't sound you don't sound young at heart when you say it like that. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> yeah, but come on, how you know? There's a lot of shaken buns. I hear a lot of talk. When we'll get into this with our next with our with our guest, uh, St- uh, Stella O'Malley, but. I hear a lot of talk about these digital natives and how they're changing the world. And all I see is shaking buns and, and pranks and stuff. So anyway, um, I don't know what to do with that, Ricky. No, we need help. We, need, we do need help. So, uh, But you know who also needs help? Uh, we at The New Flesh, we need you to leave us a rating and a review. Wherever you listen to the show, we read all the reviews, by the way. We're also on YouTube. Please subscribe to the YouTube channel and leave a comment about the show. It's um, it's actually probably one of the best places to actually talk to us. So, if you if you leave a, a comment, Ricky will, Ricky will, will say something back to you. So if that if that appeals to you, do that. And finally, please tell your friends about the show. If they don't like what they hear, are they your friends? Probably not. No. On with the show. Stella O'Malley is a psychotherapist, best-selling author, public speaker, and a parent with many years' experience working in counselling and psychotherapy. She holds a BA in counselling and psychotherapy, an MA in cognitive behavioural therapy, and diplomas in youth studies and psychometric testing and gender identity counselling. Her books include Cotton Wool Kids, Bullyproof Kids, Fragile, and most recently, What Your Teen Is Trying To Tell You. Stella, welcome to The New Flesh. Thank you very much for having me. So, Stella, although my kid is only one... I've been thinking about the future, particularly after reading your book. Now, I honestly think I would rather my kid was on drugs than be woke. <laughs> but what's your, what, what do you think? Um, being on drugs is devastating. Being woke, you can, you can, you know, you can argue with them. You can pull them back a lot easier. So, no, you're wrong. <laughs> That's, that's well that's that's why we've got you on here that's very very good advice because sometimes it feels like the wokery is worse but now that you put it like that I think you're <laughs> before we take a deep dive on 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 teenagers i, I wanted to set the, set the stage and get your thoughts on something that that i've i've been noticing for a while and, and something that i need to get off my chest and that is I, I think we're living in an anti-children period in history at the moment so 
During COVID, we shut down schools, we closed down parks and playgrounds, we forced masks on children. We did this all for fear that they would spread the disease to vulnerable people and mostly those uh, older than 70. Uh, Also, we've given many children unfettered access to the online world through smartphones. We've let gender ideology into the classroom, including bizarre drag queen story hours. We're letting people under the age of 18 take cross-sex hormones and gender affirmation surgery. And in the cultural sphere, through songs like WAP, we're teaching girls that they should be into hookup culture. But on the other hand, we're teaching boys that they should suppress their sexual desires and not be Harvey Weinstein-like creeps. And and through online porn and hookup apps, we're, we're teaching adolescents that sex is very transactional and that sex is about all just all about consent. And to top it all off, we have organizations like Black Lives Matter that are advocating for the ab- abolishment of the nuclear family and communal raising of children. And, and one thing John reminded me of the other day was that, you know, the whole wrapping your kid in cotton wool syndrome as well. Now, I, I have a five-year-old son and all of this terrifies me. Am I being too dramatic uh, have you noticed this anti-children sort of sentiment as well? There's a lot to say. I think, uh, personally, I think there's an anti-family sentiment, that it's it's very much anti-family and there is a kind of a vibe of children being little adults and that children have this kind of ability to kind of lead the way and 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 make decisions that, frankly, gives no acknowledgement to the fact that their their brains aren't formed they have very little experience. They have very little complex understanding. And it's almost, it feels almost religious that they think that these children have this kind of special access to wisdom when, why would they? They're kids, you know what I mean? They have a very, frankly, a shallow understanding of many things. So I do think there's an awful lot in what you say. I agree with everything you say, except I'm wondering about the childhood. And I kind of, to be honest, I think, We've lost our way with rearing children. We've tried to get it perfect and we've ended up wrecking it. If you follow me, we've tried too hard. I think there's an awful lot of love. I think an awful lot of parents are more connected with their kids than ever before. I think that's really quite noticeable with the work I do in my psychotherapy, that people are really connected with their, their kids in ways that we weren't as children, if you follow me. Um, however, society has created this scene where the children have these over-the-top magical experiences as children. They're kind of told to wish upon a star, the good guy will always win. Kind of it's a Harry Potter world, if you follow me. They're, they're led into this, you know, pretend magical reality. And then they get walloped into cruel reality when they hit adolescence. And they're hitting adolescence. They're being led to hit adolescence a good deal earlier because they um the, the the hypersexualization of children so so they have these short magical ridiculous childhoods that they have everything they're very much wrapped in cotton wool and then they're led into this harsh kind of sexualized sophisticated early adolescence like you know eight and nine and ten they're learning about quite significantly complex scenarios around sex and consent and things like that and they've been taught sex in, a, I would argue, a very un, unattractive way. It's all about kind of the aggressive part of sex rather than the actual, the joy of sex. <laughs> and I think that in many ways, the extended adolescence is the worst of both worlds. They're not getting a childhood and they're getting an over-the-top, elongated adolescence. So some people are in their early 20s 
and they still perceive themselves as adolescents. They they haven't grown up. And we know in psychology, just to finish, we know in psychology that if you don't get the proper experience, you're continuously kind of reverting back to it. And so I often think these extended adolescents, they never got a proper childhood experience because they were adultified too early. And then they end up never quite growing up properly, if you follow me, that they never they never really become mature and they stay in this awful adolescent reality. So I've been thinking about the, 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 the you know, what you say about this fantasy childhood leading to uh, sort of maybe an arrested development or, the, or a, a, a never fully growing up and i mean i i this might sound silly and i've already said one silly thing at the beginning so you know <laughs> I, I just got to warn you but i mean do we do we need so i i swing between you know the old breakfast club quote of you know we've just got to you know sort of the, the breakfast club idea of we just got to listen to the kids and you know get down on their level and then on the other hand i go well maybe we just need a charles dickens simulator where they get in and they just have to be a chimney sweep and experience, you know, <laughs> that kind of <laughs> that kind of Victorian life, and then and maybe that'll help them get out of it. So between these two, this this pendulum of uh, of approaches, what, what what where do you come down, uh, uh, Stella? Yeah, I think we have to be careful not to turn into reactionary, throw them up the chimney, and then they'll be all right. Because actually, there was an awful lot of very unhappy kids back then. Uh, the Breakfast Club being a good example of unhappy kids. And uh, there was an awful lot of pain. I was a very unhappy kid. So I, I don't think going backwards is where we should go. I do think that uh, we've lost our way. And I think there's an awful lot of joylessness in being a teenager these days that is pretty depressing because we've never been safer. We've never had better education. We've never had more people worrying about their mental health. We've never had more parents so devoted to the happiness of their children, which could be part of the problem. Too much attention to your happiness doesn't make for good um, people who, who are seeking meaning and purpose. It turns it into a very much what, 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 what will I do to make me happy, which is a it's psychologically an unsatisfactory way of being you you end up kind of like a hedonist but not really getting anywhere it's it's kind of it becomes a dissipated depressing kind of way of life um i think we threw out religion and i'm not a religious person i'm an atheist but we threw it out we didn't replace it with anything and if if we replace it with anything it's some sort of kind of kind of glorification of happiness and well-being and it's it's not working out for us at all. At least religion offered some sort of meaning and a framework and a purpose, a point to life. While this idea of now we just have to look after our well-being, it's it's getting us nowhere. So I think we threw out an awful lot in these last couple of generations. And I, I don't want to buy into a moral panic, but I do think there's a joylessness that we'd be fools not to acknowledge. And wokery, you could say, is a real reflection of a joyless attitude to life. Well, you mentioned religion there, and something that 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 uh, Buddhism teaches you is that happiness comes from helping others. So, do you think this there's too much of a focus on on yeah your your individual happiness rather than the happiness of the friends and family around you? Yeah, I, I do. I think the emphasis on the individual has got out of control, and I think um actually you know millennia we have had families and it's been a good system and I'm not saying that family has to be the traditional family it doesn't have to be a mammy a daddy and children it could be variations of 
you know, in, in Ireland, they have the kind of the law is around the household. So the household is given the kind of the, the emphasis rather than the family. But I think this idea of helping others, which which is in Buddhism, but it's also in if you want to look up some central tenets to well-being is helping others. Um, because uh, helping others is a really important and integral part of feeling happy. And this idea of I just going to look after myself all the time, it just it makes people feel very selfish, very individualistic and generally a point of loneliness and pointlessness about life emerges then. I just want to pick up on 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 something you said in there because I lo- I loved the chapter in your book where you talked about this relatively new shift in in uh, the way we think about children t- towards like sort of pushing them to towards peers as opposed to forming stronger bonds with parents or extended family members. So, for example, we'll move on to teens uh, proper shortly. But while we're in the neighbourhood, when I see when I send my kid to daycare a couple of days a week, I know she's getting some benefit. Uh, you know, people always say that it's always the same stuff. People go, oh, well, it's good for their, it's good to be social. And I'm like, yep, yep, that's good. But I feel like it's dead time. Whereas when she spends time with the extended family, I feel that this is time better spent and it's like, for lack of a better term, more soulful. Um, can you can you maybe elaborate on this, on this shift towards peers and maybe some of my fears there? I do think that the emphasis on peers has been misguided. I think I, I get it. I get it because so many of us kind of come from places where our families didn't give us any sustenance. And so then we turn to our peers. They were better. But then we've lost something in the depth of, of families. And I think this is something that we have to be kind of careful to throw the baby, not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I I think that the the transient nature of our lives, we're, we're moving for work. We're kind of moving on a whim because of, various different reasons and the idea of actually staying in one place for life is is really reduced and so we have not got the depth of knowledge let's say um uh, where i come from in ireland people used to know you and they knew your grandparents and they knew your aunties and uncles and they knew kind of generations and that gives a depth of knowledge so that when they see the 12 year old they kind of they know everything about that 12 year old and when, let's say, the, the, the 18 year old was introduced to somebody, they knew their whole kind of, they used to call it the seed and the breed. They knew the whole person from a very kind of deep level. Now, that can be very confining because it's like you're, you're, you're an Egan, you're not going to behave like this. You're an O'Malley, you're not going to behave like this. It can be very confining, but there was richness in it. There was a depth of knowledge and there was a sturdiness to people's roots. They knew where they came from. The new kind of where what was kind of the the type of their family. And so if they were odd in a certain way, there was often an affectionate. Well, we're all very small or we're we all have a kind of a, a, a funny stroke in us. If you follow me, there's different kind of ways. So we we've left all that behind. So now people are very individualistic. They might come from a family, let's say, of one sibling and two parents. And that family might fall asunder with divorce. The loneliness and the kind of individualistic kind of I'm on my own in this world and there's nobody who really knows me, nobody who knows me on any depth can be very frightening. It's very freeing, but it's also very frightening. And I think we're seeing that in the amount of anxiety that there is. Well, before we dive any deeper uh, into 
teenage issues. Maybe uh, you could give us a definition of, of what adolescence is. Yeah, well, adolescence is the kind of extraordinary, as, as Carl Pickard, the, the psychologist, said, adolescence is there to break the spell of childhood. And it's the passage we all have to go through to go from being a child who lives in a kind of unrealistic and innocent world to being an adult who lives in the, the bitter pill of reality. And it's anything from between 10 and 20. And there's loads of different definitions that make it just the teenage years and just the um, um, maybe from 12 to 20 or it's just pubescent. So there's lots of different people's versions of it. I believe it's between 10 and 20 and I don't think we really know how to handle it. I think especially around sex, I think we're very uneasy about how do we handle the fact that between 10 and 20, children going from from unsexual beings to sexual beings and there's a sexual awakening that happens and we don't know what to do with it. We don't know. We just look away because we're kind of we're so kind of uneasy about having anything to do with it. So it's a it's a it's a strange time. And in that, a huge amount of really big truths come into the adolescent where they realize the good guy doesn't win. Bullies are often good looking and popular and they're often have an easy life. Some people have really easy lives. Life isn't fair. Some people have really unconscionably difficult lives. And actually, this is the unreality we're being offered. There's nothing else. So it's it's kind of horrifying that we teach them such like rubbish in childhood that it's all magical and wish upon a star. And then it's so horrifically difficult in adolescence. No wonder many of them find teenage years difficult because it's like this is awful. There's homeless people and we can't even help them. Like, this is really bad. It's so far removed from what they'd learned when they were 10. And that that I think is something that's kind of happened inadvertently because before children weren't given such a magical childhood. And so therefore the drop into reality wasn't so harsh. And as a result, I think the adolescents today, they don't have religion. They don't have a kind of framework of, oh, well, this is a veil of tears and one day we'll have God's reward. They don't have any of that. Instead, they've been told, yeah, this is the bitter pill of reality. There is no solutions. Get on with it. You've had a great childhood. You're very lucky. I don't think that's good. I think that's really difficult, <laughs> in fairness to them. Well, what, one thing that I think we also do is we, is if you say take climate change as an example, like we've, we've put the future... Uh, sort of existence of the planet on the shoulders of young people as well. We're telling them that, you know, well, some people are telling them that the world is going to, you know, end in, you know, depending on who you talk to, anywhere between five and 50 years or so, you know, unless climate change is is dealt with. I mean, I, I feel like sometimes we lump things on their shoulders that uh, that they have no control over. Yeah, I think it's a kind of a case of um, we don't have a lot of problems and so the, the brain is a problem seeking organ and we're looking around. And so we exploded, arguably, we exploded COVID to extreme hysteria, I would believe, in my own opinion. And the same with climate change. And I'm not saying that COVID wasn't a very serious illness. I'm not saying that climate change wasn't a very serious threat to humanity. I know all that. But at the same time, the levels of anxiety that some, especially young people have, they, they believe they're at threat. They believe they're in danger. It's very like stranger danger. They honestly thought that they were at, at risk of being kidnapped as children. And then later on, they honestly think that the world... I remember telling one uh, teenager that like when I was a teenager, I was told 
that the world had about 30 years to, to live. And it was all around the rainbow and rainbow warriors and all this. And I honestly thought at the time the world had 30 years to live. And there was, you know, we had 30 years left. And I bought it completely. <laughs> so she was telling me that. And um, I was there going, well, I was told that as a kid. And here I am 30 years later. And we're being told, oh, the world is 30 years left. So me and this teenager kind of had this realisation that there will be people saying the, the end is nigh. And they can say it in very complicated and very sophisticated ways, but humanity has shown itself to be resilient in, in many, many different fields and arenas. The idea that we, it's a very self-important narcissistic belief to think we are the end of humanity. We, we, we are the most special generation. It's all ending with us. Rather than thinking, well, we've come through a hell of a lot of adversary over the years. There's no reason to think that we can't, we can't this time. But I, I really do think we're worrying ourselves into a state of absolute hysteria. And maybe just to to you know stay in, uh, talking about adolescence and, and coming at it from a different uh, a different aspect of it. I read in your book that teens also struggle with empathy and sort of live in a bit of a sturm and drang nightmare of selfishness. So is it possible to teach empathy? Yeah, well, I, I actually, I lived this experiment because my husband didn't have much empathy. And I said, I've got to try and teach you because everybody's asking. Can and you, you still hooked up with him though. Yeah, so yeah, that's yeah. beautiful. Ah, yeah, he's a lovely man. Just because you don't have empathy doesn't mean you're not nice. Empathy is the ability to kind of ex- experience somebody else's feelings. And I happen to have the gift of empathy. I, I kind of find it very easy to, to kind of almost step into somebody else's skin. It's like I look at them and I can kind of feel it. And other people don't have that skill, but some people have other skills. Somebody who doesn't have empathy, it's not that they necessarily don't care about the other person. They just don't have the almost the imagination to feel what it's like for them, if you follow me. So anyway, I did kind of make inroads in teaching my husband empathy and he definitely improved. And also the realisation that he doesn't have empathy, but the situation is bad, is very helpful for somebody. I do think an awful lot of teenagers, it's not only that they don't have empathy, but they've been taught to be self-absorbed. They've been taught to be completely wrapped up in themselves. All the kind of memes, the Instagram, this kind of emphasis on you do you, uh, kind of if it feels good, just go your own way. And, you know, it can feel good in passing, but it ends up that they're quite self-absorbed and lonely because nobody else is looking out for them. There isn't a feeling of here we are together by hook or by crook, let's stay friends. You know what I mean? It's kind of, now nah, I'm moving on. They've got an over-the-top sense of boundaries. So if, if their friend is upset, they can say, yeah, I, I can't quite deal with that at the moment. And so they, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I wish I could have done that. That would have been so good. Well, you know, you see those throwaway <laughs> statements that you just made? So many people <laughs> did make them. And we've created this society. We've created it. And then I've realised, genuinely, we have, we, 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 our generation have heralded in this generation of teenagers who are like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I don't feel equipped for dealing with it. It's really noticeable if you go onto platforms like Mumsnet, where somebody might say, let's say, I think my best friend's husband is having an affair. What should I do? And everybody piles on to say, don't go near it, don't go near it. Go to a professional, let her go to the professionals, don't go near it. And it's like, oh my God. Whatever happened to kind of caring about your friend? There's a lot less emphasis on that and a lot more emphasis on individualism. 
And I think we're losing so much with that. I really do. Well, some of the worst people I've met in my life are actors. But I, I have heard... <laughs> Where's this going, Ricky? Uh, oh, stay with me. Stay with me. Okay, right. I, I have heard some people say that, that if kids get involved in drama, that that is a way to teach empathy because you are, you know, you, you have to basically become a, a different person and, you know through i guess through the production or, or whatever play or whatever you're doing you know you, you sort of have to feel emotions and convey those sorts of things and th there may be something in that i'm not quite sure but i was thinking maybe drama and art you know the, the sort of the, art, the artistic side of life may be a way to help kids learn empathy i think that's a really good point i think uh film drama art literature music uh, one thing that um, like being a great reader is it does cultivate empathy. Watching, you know, good films, quality kind of art and literature and music, it does create this ability to kind of understand what it's like for somebody else. So actually, I think the the vacuous nature of of reality these days where it's more about Love Island and it's not about kind of good literature and good films and good music. I do think we've lost a lot. I think we've lost the ability to imagine what it's like for somebody else. And when we lose that, we lose our sense of kind of care and compassion for other people because we can't imagine what it must feel like. And so we just roll on. So I, I think a, a heavy emphasis back on if you want to, you know, if you want to look after your five year old and your one year old, bring in fr from the beginning. You know, there's so many beautiful children's literature and, you know, art and music that are really, really deep for a five-year-old, that are really like where the wild things are and things like that for the five-year-olds. is It's just amazing what's out there and the, the, the vacuous nature of the passing media is, is really quite damaging to these kids. Well, uh, I, I think of my mother here because when I was a teen, and uh, we, Ricky and I are both uh, uh, film obsessives, and so my mum uh, gave, uh, well, you know, gave me a lot of great films to, to watch one of the one of the ones when I, it was i was i must i must have been um 12 or something and she let me watch the godfather and um there was a range of films that she she let me watch and obviously i was off to the races after that but uh and then I, but I, I way earlier than i should have i watched train spotting and uh you know and pop fiction and a, a lot of like dirty dancing but um I took away all so many great lessons from all of these, even especially in something like The Godfather. I saw a, a, a different family unit and the way that you know you could uh, you could be um, you know no matter what they did in there. I talked about it with my mum. No matter what these characters did to other people, they were always a really great family, <laughs> really good to each other. At least in that first one. And um, so you know this this also brings me into this idea of. I also got out of these films, you know, because I was a teen. These were adult films, and it sort of made me yearn for the adult world. Wow! Like you know, I've heard Danny, I've heard Danny, Danny Boyle, talk about this, about this idea that you, 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 you it's like you're peeking from the staircase down onto onto mum and dad, you know, in their in their their suit, you know, going out to to dinner and dancing, and you yearn for this this exciting world that's realer than the dumb one you live in, you know, and um. Uh, I just want to know, how do we make adulthood desirable again? Uh, you know, you're really, you're bang on. And it's so funny that your your mother did that because I've done that with my kids with trepidation thinking I might really regret this. But I actually think the, the art and the, the films that I've introduced them to are so powerful. They give depth. 
in a world that is really lacking in depth. It's got everything else, but we don't offer much depth. And we offer so much compelling media that it's a hell of a thing to compete with, if you follow me. It's very hard to compete with TikTok. It's very hard to compete with YouTube. It's so fast and it's a multi-billion industry that is constantly attracting teenagers and young people to a, a kind of a throwaway culture that all we've got is the heady guns like the Godfather and Trainspotting. That is, you know, we, 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 that will that will give that will, you know, that will turn the teenagers head. And so often in my counselling, I've not only recommended, but I've gone to the bother of finding the link and sending teenagers that I work with good, strong films like Once Were Warriors and, you know, like heavy films that remind them like, wow, there are other people who are experiencing really serious lives and it gives them a, a kind of feeling in touch with humanity, feeling in touch with the kind of universality of the human experience. And I think that has so much, so much richness and weight to it that it really, really matters that we do it. I, I agree with your mother. I think it's great, but I think I've lost the thread of the question. But anyway, no, no. no we talk, but I, I, I just as you were talking, then I was thinking about because uh, I just don't think there's enough emphasis put on this because you know, around about the time we were in high school, I think Romeo and Juliet had come out, Baz Luhrmann's film, and you know, even that film, although uh, it was um, you know somewhat pulpy. It's 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 still a it feels like an adult entertainment you know in 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 many ways and uh, along with all the other ones we watch it just feels feels like you know the way you're feeling at that time when as I say when it's that sort of sturm and drang like you know you're just you feel like capital R romantic inside just you're you're being torn asunder by all these emotions and and all of that and it just feels like that great art or you know that 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 um is even quite heavy seems to just to to uh, to to um, fit you like a glove, you know what I mean? Like yeah. you, you just it, it can exercise those those, which is another film I watched, The Exorcist. <laughs> but, but but it can sort of get, it can it can bring out it sort of matches the way you you feel inside, and maybe you feel this connection, this link between. I mean, who knows how far back it goes? Yeah, you know, when you think back in your most painful times in life, you know, having good music, having literature or or, or films to kind of console you in a strange way, uh, uh, really it matters. Um, I, I, I haven't shown my kids Romeo and Juliet, Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet, I must watch it. Is it very good? Because I do think, I, I, the, basically the, hum, the teenage brain is fully formed in teenage years, but it lacks complexity. And from the age of adolescence onward, it's just gaining in complexity all the time until the 20s. And so if you watch films like perhaps certainly <laughs> Romeo and Juliet is Shakespeare, so I have no doubt has great depth um, it will create depth in 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 the teenage and they desperately need it. They desperately need it because how do you make sense of this when you stand back and you realize what they have to actually make come to terms with? in their teenage years, they have to come to terms with the fact that we're in this world. Nobody knows why we're here. Nobody knows where we're going. Nobody knows what happened before I was born or when I die. Nobody actually knows what the point of all this is. And it's extremely unfair. Some people seem to sail through it and some people have a very easy time. Some people are incredibly good looking and clever and uh, popular. And some people are incredibly ugly and stupid and unpopular. And uh, there you go, sit with that, off you go, make sense of that. (laughs) 
And like I say before, like before, they had at least they could turn to religion and say, well, God has a plan. Now they don't have that, but they do have literature, art, film. And in fairness, this does seem to be the golden age of television. There's so many brilliant stuff on. So if we can turn our, our teenagers onto anything that is has got weight and depth, I think they'll really significantly benefit from it. I just thought of a hundred things from that that Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet uh, that that was so influential. You know, I mean, most most millennials. My my wife is a is a huge fan. I think all girls fell in love with Leo when he was beautiful, and I was obsessed with Claire Danes. But but just the story, the way it gets you, the just one tiny thing at the beginning, the idea that. Um, uh, Romeo's got a girlfriend that he's, he's obsessed with Rosaline, right? And then um, he, he, we never meet her, and then he, then he falls in love with Juliet, and just that, that, that simple thing where you think about it, you go, wait, wait. So, this idea that you can feel something about someone and then move on so quickly, maybe that's, maybe that's part of being a teen, you know? Like, there's, that's just one of a million things like you know you can tell you can say oh you know how romeo like moaned on and wrote this poetry about rosaline <laughs> and then and then he's and he's, and he's hassling the his, his friends are all hassling him about it and everything and then so these are the there's a million discussions i mean let alone all the the language mine only love sprung from mine only hate or you know the just the ending and the ending they, they change the ending a little bit where they get sort of see each other before they die and just that feeling of ah oh, that's how it, that's how it feels that's that's it. That's life. Romeo and Juliet has not only that kind of insane love that can take over a teenager that they will kill for it. It has suicide. Mm. It has kind of crazy losing your way in life. It has it has it all, if you follow me. So, you know, at least Shakespeare certainly had it and other generations had access to these very they mightn't have had connections with their parents. They mightn't have had counsellors. They mightn't have had teachers who, who gave a damn about them, but they were offered richness and depth. While our, this generation aren't offered that. They're offered everything else. They're offered a lot of kind of surface level pleasantness, but very little depth that can make them make sense of, frankly, a very puzzling existence, which is life. One, one thing I've noticed uh, is that there, there's, there's a lack of, you know, current rock and and punk music and a sort of aggressive music that that we would have got into as 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 teens growing up, uh, but also th- th- there's not a sort of a, a common it, it, like like music experience in terms of like like this was your era of music. You know what I mean? Like because I think now because of um, apps like Spotify and YouTube Music, like the kids now have access to the the entire history of music. Yeah. And I, I wonder if that that has a bit of a effect on them that they they don't have this sort of common music that they can call their own and there's there's nothing I, I'm not seeing anything very rebellious or you know or, or something that that gives kids sort of an aggressive outlet musically anymore. Yeah, or rebellious. Yeah, you're you're so right. There isn't the common shared experience. It's not so easily accessible. Things go viral, but they last twenty four hours. If you follow me. While remember when you were a teenager and, you know, you met somebody who also liked your favorite singer and the kind of power of connect. Oh, do you like them, too? And you know what I mean? And talking mm-hmm. about different albums, the concept of an album and the depth of kind of experience of 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 loving an album, falling in love with an album. And it takes some time to fall in love with an album, get to know all the songs, all the lyrics, all that that is gone. Now, in fairness, I do think that 
you know, I, I was born in 1974. I do think I lived in the golden age of music, that the music was phenomenal. From, you know, maybe the 50s, 60s onwards, there was an extraordinary period for, for a few decades. I don't think we are in that golden period, but I do think we're in the golden period of film. I do think that they that, that even very young children are being offered really powerful film experiences. Now, we're also in the golden age of, of social media where it's just quick clips. <laughs> And the quick the golden clips. age of TikTok. Yeah, and which really... Shaking your butt on yeah, TikTok. Twerking, <laughs> like, you know. So there, there's, there's a terrible kind of challenge um, that, that never exists before. But, you know, I think... I do think, you know, humanity has continuously found whatever the culture is and made art out of it. And so we might hark back to music. And in a way, I think these days, the, 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 the artists of today... They'll find it in in art and film and cameras and visuals that they will see depth in that and they will move with that. I I, I kind of think we got music, they got film. If you follow me, and you know, there's I think they're both very powerful. Well, seeing as we're in sort of the realm of technology at the moment, I I, I have an interest in in how kids are using technology, and you know, I always keep my eye out when I see groups of of young people. And 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 just the other day, I was stopped at a red light uh, I was driving around and, and I looked over to a bus stop to see 10 or so high school boys all with their heads down hunched over their smartphones and do you think we'll look back on smartphones in the same way we look back at old photos of, of 10 year olds in the 1900s who were smoking cigarettes I do I do and I think um, we will look back in horror that we allowed them it um, I think, you know, you, you know, we, we did play video games as kids and I don't think you remember your, your glory days playing videos. I think it's, it's a little bit pointlessness, but I, I think we did have an awful lot of generations of kids. When I was a kid, you were able to buy cigarettes in singles in the shop around the corner because they understood that kids didn't have money to buy packets of cigarettes. You could the, the the shop would sell them singly. It's <laughs> just meeting a market need. I yeah, totally. Totally, and that would be horrific if that was to happen now. That you could buy cigarettes singly because the kids can only afford single cigarettes, and uh, that that's only in, you know what is that thirty forty years ago. So I do think we'll look back and the access that ch- children had to to um, smartphones will be kind of people will be aghast that they were able to you know they were a, they had access to kind of brutal bestiality and porn that would make your head fall off at such an yeah. early such an early age i i really think that we're going to be that the culturally it won't be acceptable for children to have such free access to such a, a horrible kind of side of life. And I'm not saying it at all a horrible side, but effectively we've got 11 year olds playing alongside the red light district and sometimes they fall in and it, mm. um, the, it they find it very hard to pull back out. They can't come back out because it's very compelling. It's, it's almost like watching continuous compelling car crashes and they keep on going back to it and they're way out of their depth very quickly. Yeah, you mentioned you mentioned video games. I, I remember thinking back to, to my time uh, and of course, this is sort of you know the kind of video games we had. Well, space Invaders. Yes, well, they're a little <laughs> bit more advanced. The Space Invaders. I'm not that old, although I was joking. Th- those sorts <laughs> of games existed, like Quake and 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 June and those sorts of the Sims, Sims that sort of thing. But I, I just always remember when when you'd complete 
a, a game like that, like because it would take you hours or sometimes even days to complete. There, there was a hollowness inside of you, like that you'd feel like like what now, you know. And I think about back on my childhood, and I, I don't I don't think fondly of my video game time, but I do of say other things like like playing basketball as a big basketball fan, and you know out outdoorsy sort sorts of things uh, with friends. Um, so I, yeah, I, I don't know what your experience is, is with kids. That's a and, really, and I, yeah, I think that's really valuable what you've just said because that hollowness, that emptiness, that's really, really common experience among teenagers and more so these days. Even like if they're, if they're online, let's say social media, it's very akin to that hollowness. You're on it for six hours and then you look up and think, God, I did nothing today. You don't feel any sense, even if you did go through the kind of, you know, the levels and you ended up on gaming and you went through something, you do feel like you've wasted, you don't feel a sense of connection with the world. And that sense of connection, if you, if us three were meeting in person today, we'd walk away quite nourished. Now, it does require um, vulnerability to be connected with somebody. And so if us three were meeting and it didn't go well, we'd all be a little bit rattled and distressed for the day. So that can happen. But if we met in person and we connected, which we seem to be doing, I think we'd walk away feeling kind of good about life, a bit more stronger about life, a bit more kind of reminding ourselves we can handle life. And there's lots of lovely people out there. The fact that we're meeting on Zoom, it's just not as warm. It's not as connected. It it lacks. And we all found that out over, over COVID. Oh, you can have you know, coffee with your friends over Zoom. And it, it was <laughs> awful. And uh, I think I did it oh, once. Yeah. Awful. <laughs> and so we found out there's something about the meeting of people that although when it goes bad, it goes very bad and you feel very, very weakened. When it goes well, it goes very well and you feel more able for life. People who fall into their phones and they're falling into their phones in droves. It's not as if it's just the few teenagers. All the teenagers have fallen into their phones. So they're all that little bit more lonely. They're all that little bit more disconnected. They're all that much more reluctant to hang out. So many teenagers I work with, they don't want to meet their their friends in real life. They're like, I know I prefer to meet them online because they feel less vulnerable. They feel less exposed. They feel less likely to feel kind of awkward and a bit kind of socially kind of inept and instead they're like oh no i'll be a razzmatazz i'll be sophisticated i'll be kind of full of gags online it'll be great and they don't know what they're missing they're missing the depth and they don't know what they're missing because they haven't experienced it enough my sisters and their friends have children who are on the eve of becoming teenagers and and since i have an 11th month old baby i suddenly know everything about children Uh, (laughs) and um (laughs) We talk about various issues. <laughs> Don't worry, they let me know that I'm ridiculous. But but at the same time, in terms of technology, when I suggest seriously limiting screen time or totally banning apps like TikTok uh, in particular because it, it breaks your brain, uh, to quote Catherine Burblesing, uh, I get all sorts of excuses. You don't know what it's like. They need their devices. They're digital natives, which I think is just, you know, the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Like they're, like they're all coders or something. You know, what does that even mean? So, you know, they're, they're, they're not Edward Snowden. Okay. I know what they're doing on there. 
So <laughs> why, why am I getting so much resistance from these parents about this? The situation oh, is serious. You. Yeah, because they're... Okay. <laughs> hit me, Stella. Come on. I need to hear because it. Because they're an invaluable electronic babysitter. Like if I had a two-year-old and I was uh, meeting you today and I didn't have uh, a babysitter because of, let's say, time changes or something, stick them in front of a film and they'd be grand. Put their headphones on. It's so handy it's the convenience of it that is so so handy you see it in cafes all the time i remember the first time i saw it i nearly died now i see it every single day that the mother comes in for a coffee she's meeting her friend give the kid headphones and a, a laptop and they'll leave you alone throw them a bun and some hot chocolate and there they are getting fat <laughs> leaving you alone while you're chatting with your mate about how her parenting watching is. bluey yeah it's it's, uh. it's it's so so convenient but I do think you're right. I, I, you know, my kids were born in 2007, 2009, and I was very lucky that social media hadn't taken off and that um, that massive content for young children hadn't taken off. They missed it by the skin of their teeth. And had I been offered Twitter and Facebook and Mumsnet and all those things um, at that time, I don't I didn't have a smartphone. Smartphones only really became more common than dumb phones in around 2012. And so those early years, you know, me and my kids missed. But honestly, I would have been such a victim of it. I would have really fallen into it. So I don't have any judgment, but I do think they are very damaging. Those kids, those two year olds on their laptops. And yet you're so right. I remember I used to be told by all the parents, oh, they're a whiz on the computers. It's like, no, they're not. They're a whiz of being able to turn it on. <laughs> they just know more than you, Boomer. And what I've noticed with so many teenagers I've worked with, They've no interest in working with, with computers. They have no interest and very few of them, unless it's the, oh, I'm going to design video games. They're all going to design. It's like the latest. I'm going to be a footballer. I'm going to be a video game designer. And it's like, yeah, OK, mm -hmm. <laughs> good luck with that. <laughs> What's well, it's You know, it's it, it's going back to that thing where we were saying, you know, like like the adult world used to be something that was enticing for young people. Or like if you went out to, to say, a restaurant or a cafe, like, and, and this was pre-smartphone or, or pre-tablet or whatever, like, you just had to be part of that adult world, you know. And and if you misbehaved, then you didn't get to come out again the next time, you yeah. know. And this was almost like an induction into How into the adult world that, 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 that we're missing. I mean... Do you think that's true? I think that's very true. I think uh, before I go into that, but you know, because we do have to sell adulthood to teenagers or else they won't want to grow up and they don't want to grow up. It's very noticeable how many of them want to say it's childish. But I just want to point out the other people who, who the kids who don't want to be video game designers, they want to be social media influencers. And anybody who knows a social media influencer, they live in a very fake life. They're kind of taking mm. a photo of their lunch, smiling, and then they go into kind of depression because they're not eating any of it because they've got an eating disorder. So it's really, really noticeable how fake and vacuous the, the, the jobs that they want to be, which is the influencer, mm. is. But to go back onto that, to, to talk about the adult, these kids very often, for the first time ever, this is the first generation that can't quite expect to be more wealthy than their parents. And this has never happened before. Every other generation, as far as we know, in history, presumed that they would be a little bit better off than their parents. And so I think this is a massive deal. And I think it's psychically very disturbing to presume that you're going to be poorer than your parents. It's never happened before. The whole point about civilization is that we're having babies because it's getting better. 
that's that's what kind of we're living on this presumption that life is getting better and that's why we have babies because there's where there's life there's hope and this generation don't presume that they will be more wealthy or better off than their parents they kind of presume that it's quite likely that they won't be that they'll work harder they'll earn less they won't have a, a security of a house and they won't kind of be better off when they when they uh, have children themselves. It's it's a very psychically disturbing notion. And an awful lot of teenagers are notably not wanting to be adults. They just see admin pressure, stress. They don't see there's any buy in. They've already been devastated by the disappointment of adolescence. So they just think, nah, I don't want to move out. I want to stay a child. I don't want a job. I don't want this stressy life that isn't being sold to me, that has been kind of shown to me as to be horrible. I remember when I, I I had my first bank account, it was a post office account. I went down with my mother and we had to sign on the dotted line. I remember signing my name. I was about eight and I remember feeling so powerful. I had my own money. It was just going to be so cool. And I'd go into the post office and take out 50p. And I, you know, I thought I was Gordon Gekko. <laughs> I was, it was a real feeling of power and it was enjoyable. And then I remember uh, watching my children and helping my children try to open a credit union account. And it was like this draining, monotonous, relentless, admin, bureaucratic nightmare where by the end of it, my kids had lost all interest in having an account. There was no feeling of power. It was just like, oh, we have to go back in and show more proof of address and proof of ID. Yeah. They actually knew me. They li- I live across the road from the credit union, so it was all a sham. And it was a real indication of, well, no wonder the teenagers don't want to grow up. They just see it as a bureaucratic nightmare. And frankly, in this world of passwords and ID and further ID and all this, it is a bureaucratic nightmare for a lot of them. So... It's a real issue that we need to deal with. So there's another issue you, you cover in your book. Now, this is another case study I have from you. So uh, for you, so a, a colleague told me about her daughter, good student, maybe, I don't know, year 11, I, I think, on track to do re- really well. I've met her, actually. She's, she's very personable. Now, the parent told me that this kid will not get up and go to school, uh, sometimes not until 11 a.m. or something like that, maybe maybe even beyond this was um, last year or so. So the mother said she'd had all the arguments and she'd sort of given up and, and just left it in her, the balls in her court or something like that. Now, Stella, I find this totally outrageous. This is just like, I heard this story and I was like, you know, I mean, I was not the school val- valedictorian, but I showed up every day. It just, it just simply would not have occurred to me not to. And I, don't, even, I turned up if I was sick, if I was whatever. So what, what, what's going on with this girl? Well, it, she is not alone. School refusal is really common. It's really common. One of the reasons I wrote this book is to kind of break the taboo of the kind of secret problems so many parents were facing because they thought they were alone in their child refusing to go to school. It's really, really common. And very often children go to school as well and then they leave school and they leave early because they just can't ha- handle it. And um, very often children go in late, like the girl you've just described, she goes in at 11 or whatever, and they leave when they want. It's part of this child-led world where we move from being child-centered to being child-led. And the kid says, it's better for me, it's better for my mental health, effectively, implicitly. They mightn't be saying those words, but they're pretty much saying them. But there, there comes a time, just I know you've both got 
parents, you're both parents of young children, there comes a time at around about 12 or 13 where you realise you have no real control over the child. If the child decides they don't want to go to school, you cannot do anything about that. You know, you can drag them into the school and they can walk back out. You can drag so many kids. I remember one mother saying that the child didn't go to secondary school. They did one day in the entire um, the entire this is not this is not a lie. Five, five years. Yeah, one day. <laughs> and basically after a year, they gave up. They gave up and he, they let, let him homeschool himself. And he did homeschool himself and he did well. That wasn't the point. He wouldn't go into school. So one day he went in. And the thing is, they told me the whole sorry story of going up, driving up. He wouldn't get out of the car, driving up again. He wouldn't get out of the car, getting out of the car and walking straight back home, getting out of the car and not going anywhere near the school or the house, just never going to school. And there's nothing we can do about that. You know, back in the day, we had the authority to say, you will do what I say. That is gone. It is completely gone. And that that I don't see that coming back. So you have to negotiate with the kid. Will you please go into school? And if they aren't minded to go into school, they won't. And it's happening in a very, very commonly in all schools all over the world. Kids are not going to school. This is cross-cultural. Yeah, kids are not going to school. I don't know if it's happening now. In fairness, I doubt if it's happening in China and Hong Kong. I would say they're definitely going to school there. Um, but, yes. um, you know, the more authoritarian cultures won't have any of that, no. But the English-speaking Western world, that without a doubt, this is really rampant. And it's, it's, it's very undisciplined because the kids end up kind of thinking that school is something they can take part in. The schools are rolling with it. They're used to kids not going to school and everybody's unhappier because they haven't learned the discipline of you get up, you have your breakfast, you go to school, you come back. They haven't learned that discipline. So I don't know what we're going to do about that. I do know it's very, very common. But but you can't be the sort of parent who complains about the uh, the Gen Z or the millennial at your work who's who's asking about and turning up like you can't do that and then go home and put up with you and send you and you know put up with your kid who's um you know having you know refusing to go to school you can't ask you wouldn't have the right to then say oh how did this happen how did this millennial how did this oh this is outrageous oh these kids don't know what they're doing you go yeah okay all right you're you're actually part of the problem yeah but you know society you you'll be you'll get you you'll probably both get your own kind of crash into reality in the next 10 years when you realize your ability to control your kid is massively reduced compared to your parents' ability to control you. The only, the only kind of control you have over your, most, teenage, most parents have over teenagers is their phone. There really isn't anything else that will, that will kind of, if you grounded them, they couldn't care less. You know what I mean? And um, often they have... They probably like that. Yeah, and often, like, there's a real issue that all the schools have made the phones integral to their homework. So they need their homework to do it. And so many parents are saying, I'm, I'm, I'm stepping over the fact that they can't do their homework. I don't care. I need to control something here and I'm going to control the phone. And th- it's really an issue. They're taking all their homework. They take screenshots on their phone. Everything is wrapped up with their phone. And so your ability is massively reduced, massively reduced. And that's not just the woke parents. That's all the parents, because society has created a world where you just don't have very much control and the, the teenager has been brought up to believe that their well-being is much more important 
than any orders from their mummy or their daddy. Okay. Do these parents need to form a little power block, like on a grassroots <laughs> grassroots level, and sort of unionize a bit and say, "All right, we're all on a unity ticket here. These phones are terrible. Let's go to the teacher and say, stop." Well, actually, I think my sister did this because they they um they got the kids' phones and then the, and they said, "Oh no, they they took off um some messaging function, but the kids were still able to do it using some some they were able to find a way around it." And so the parents had to all go to the teacher and say, "Hey, mate, like, you know, um, we actually got to." shut this down because they're just messaging each other and I've read the messages and they're not great. Yeah, parents will. And I think this will happen. I think parents do have power. I've seen, you know, schools club together and classrooms, classroom parents make a decision that nobody's going to get a a phone yet. Now, there's always outliers. People always break the rules. It doesn't matter. The culture of the classroom is most of the kids don't have a phone yet. So, yeah, parents definitely have some power in that. And I think they will use it. And I think there will be changes just like there became changes and kids aren't smoking now. And it's not acceptable for, for shops to sell cigarettes by in singles. There's going to be an, 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 an equal, I think, backlash to the parents um, allowing such easy access. Parents are just going to the parents whose teenagers got very badly burnt by you know maybe kind of the awful things that they kind of got exposed to those parents of the younger kids start really coming in very heavy on the phone and that does give you some sort of power well one of your roles as as, as psychotherapist is, is gender identity counseling and i'm fascinated to know how you conduct these sessions because there are trans advocacy organizations that only want therapists to affirm but we're also hearing more and more about anti-conversion therapy legislation that governments are putting out. So how, how can you counsel young people who are confused about gender when there is this whole cultural and in some cases legislative apparatus that's encouraging you just to affirm their feelings? Well, there's a few things about that, like gender affirmative approach. That's just arrived in the last 10 years. It's, a, it's unsupported by any sort of long term evidence. Nobody really knows um, what is the impact of gender affirmative um, counselling because it's only about 10 years in existence. And so while in the short term, people might say it's very pleasant because we all know it's very pleasant to be agreed with because that's what the affirmative uh, approach offers you. It's effectively the nodding dog of therapy where somebody comes in and they what whatever they propose, the therapist affirms and confirms and creates a scenario where whatever you say is going to be agreed with. Now, I would argue that would lead to an existential despair and an ache and a loneliness, because when I go to my friend or a therapist and they just agree with everything I say, I I want more. I want depth and challenge and thought provoking conversation. So it wouldn't, frankly, do anything for me. So that is one aspect that I, I, I want to point out. And the second would be conversion therapy as a concept has a terrible barbaric history where people were given electric electric you know electric shock therapy they were given um forced watched porn they were you know corrective rape there was it was a disgusting and barbaric practice that was uh for people who were either gay lesbian or bisexual and it's it's gone for decades there's no ethical counseling body in the world that supports these awful barbaric practices I don't see it as therapy at all. I see it as practices. And uh, it's decades gone. Like, you know, by the 80s, it was gone out with the arc. And there was often kind of residual kind of concepts of a few kind of 
old homophobes in an organisation. But the, the general thinking of any sort of forcing somebody to be, to be a different sexual orientation and the belief that this would work has gone out and it's gone out decades. So suddenly, in the last about five or six or eight years, they've expanded the meaning of what is conversion therapy to suddenly include gender identity. Never, never included it before. And um, suddenly they've also expanded the meaning of what is conversion therapy to, to kind of encompass ordinary, exploratory, gentle questioning of a person when you've got, you know, the, the scented candles and the nice atmosphere and you're asking them to explore, the, the, you know, their, their psyche. And people are trying to kind of appropriate this experience and pretend that it's conversion therapy. It's not appropriate. It's a it's a kind of a, a new concept. It's a new understanding. These incredibly badly worded bills are being rolled out around the world. And when you look at them, they're so badly worded. It's like they, they literally don't even make sense. These words, they contradict themselves, the wording of the of these conversion therapy bans. So they're they're a, they're a mess, an utter mess brought in by people who seem to have their own kind of ideas about what they're doing. And um, frankly, an awful lot of virtue signaling politicians are jumping in on the therapeutic experience without an idea of what occurs within therapy. And they're going to what rather than stop this therapy that isn't happening, like, you know, for example, in Ireland, the, the Minister for, for Children and Youth, he did a scoping survey to see if there was any conversion therapy happening in the last 20 years in Ireland. And he didn't find any. And so then what he did is he's, he expanded his survey and he included online anonymous um, survey. <laughs> and then <laughs> he suddenly found it. And he found a 12 year old who apparently had ECT, electroconvulsal therapy. And it's like there's no 12 year old who's getting electroconvulsal therapy in Ireland. It's not happening. It's just not happening. And so people were lying in this survey. And now he believes that there is uh, conversion therapy happening. So something extraordinary has happened in the zeitgeist with gender. We all know it's exploded in the thousands in, in recent years. And people have broadened the concept of what might be constituted conversion therapy. What has happened is basically therapists don't work in this world. And an awful lot of distressed kids are afraid um, to go to therapy because they think conversion therapy is going to happen. A real kind of panic and scaremongering has happened and it's a dreadful, dreadful impact on kind of vulnerable kids. It's a horrible scene. And and do you, do you get much heat or blowback for 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 the work the work you do? I mean, are, are people picketing out the front of your your place, calling you a you know a conversion therapy transphobe or something? Um, no, um, it's all online. I think uh, the the energy of the online activist is stupendous, and the lack of energy in real life is also stupendous. So <laughs> they're they certainly incredibly um, articulate and vitriolic and intense online. And yet, in reality, the, you know, the physicality of it has been few and far between. And I think that's a reflection of this online world where people live in an online world and their geniuses online and they have sex online and they have friendships online and they don't do anything in, re in reality. And they lose touch with how to live a civilised, decent life. I think it's very sad. 
Well, Stella, we're, we're very mindful of time here, so we're going to wrap it up soon. And, and I'd love to have you back to talk more about the trans issue, which is, you know, it's a huge can of worms. It's a whole episode there. But but perhaps you've got some, you might have some practical advice for us or our listeners, you know, if, if some sort of gender confusion, uh, you know, sweeps through a, a year group or a peer group at school, like what, what sort of advice do you have to for parents in that situation? Well, I think... What we spoke about was very interesting in this podcast. I think offering your teenager depth is a real gift. I think, you know, doing as as your mom did, which is offering kind of films that will kind of provide a teenager with a sense of the world and a sense of kind of a common thread with humanity is very important. If at all possible, kind of relinquish the reins of their physical um, um, world so that they can go into the city and go to the cinema or they can go to discos or they can meet their friends. I know they won't find many friends to meet because all the kids are online, but that your kid has physical freedom does suggest that they'd be less likely to be addicted to their phones and to accept that we're living in a world that's effectively the, you know, the the 1950s of the tobacco world and an awful lot of people got lung cancer, an awful lot of people got huge distressing illnesses because of cigarettes. Something similar is going to happen here. There's going to be a lot of fallen soldiers and to to kind of see the world and see the cultural landscape for what it is and realize that if you kind of make your own way and create your own family and try and find like-minded families to meet, you and your kids will be better off. And I, I accept this isn't easy at all. Well, I'd like to thank you for writing the book, uh, Stella, because it really um, has given me uh, a lot of tools to work with my nieces and nephews who are, are, are reaching this this rather scary stage. And, you know, uh, although Ricky and I have had fun, uh, you know, sort of fun, um, uh, you know, sort of making fun of these the parents with teens, uh, I, we, we know we're in for a massive fall. <laughs> so, don't, so don't worry about that. We are aware of oh, that. Good. But I just... But I, but I, well, I'll enjoy my hubris for another few minutes. But I, I, I would like to give you the final word on, on, on this, on this book. Uh, what your teen is trying to tell you, and and perhaps um, you know, any about to our listeners, you know, uh, who you, who you think it might be for, who's listening. Yeah, I'm trying to reach the parents of teenagers who feel out of their depth with this world that we're living in, and who feel scared. And I'm trying to remind us, honestly. You know what will survive of us is love. We'll be okay. Your, fa- you know, if you if you love your kids and you look after them, they'll be okay. But there are challenges, and the more you equip yourself with just a few little bits of information, that's why I make the book very easy. You don't have to read it through. You could just look up communication, or look up OCD, or look up gaming, or porn, or whatever, and be able to read about that little bit. That honestly, you don't have to send them off to the therapist you don't have to get in the professionals you're good enough as you are you're the world authority on your children and honestly what you've got to offer is as good as what anybody else has well stella before we let you go we do have a final question we ask all of our guests now we're we're, we're trying to encourage our listeners and encourage ourselves to read more and so we ask all of our guests this question we'd like to know what you're reading right now oh i've just finished an amazing book called good girls i finished it this morning by hadley freeman and it's about anorexia and it's really good. And I've just started another book, which is really, really, really recommended. It's by a person called, let me just look, where is it? Called Self Made Man. And it's by Sarah, is that? Just let me see that. Sarah Vincent. 
Yeah. Nora Vincent. So it's called Self Made Man by Nora Vincent. And she it's 2006. She's not woke. She's a lesbian and she dresses up and lives as a man for 18 months. And it's 2006, just before gender exploded. I would have, I think I needed a trigger warning before that offensive uh, synopsis uh, you just read out. Uh, <laughs> I refuse to believe someone could dress up. She dresses up as a man. She goes into sex clubs. She joins a bowling team. She goes into a monastery and she lives as a man. It's phenomenal. It's really interesting book. But actually, this same person, Nora Vincent, she didn't, she ended up, because I looked her up then, I started reading it going, oh God, who is this person? And she didn't like identity politics. And it came to a tragic end, died, as far as I can see, it, with Dignitas um, uh, last year. So I, I don't know oh very God. much. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. Mm. And it was a huge book at the time, 2006. And it's so, what's the word? Unwoke. It, it's it's unbelievable. It's the most wonderful cover art ever I, I i think i've heard of this story did yeah. she did she come to the conclusion that 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 being a man sucked yeah is that that's yeah. i've I just started reading it i'm only a couple of chapters in i only started this morning but it really got me and i i really mm. recommend it i also re- recommend hadley freeman's book about anorexia called good girls both brilliant books and i had been going through a desert of books so had you asked me a few weeks ago i would have said ah but actually <laughs> i'm on a good turn right now Great recommendation. That's awesome. Fantastic stuff. Well, uh, thank you so much, Stella. Thank you for being so generous with your time. Yeah, I really, I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed our chat. Thank you for listening to the New Flesh Podcast. If you like our work, please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or even writing us a review. It really does help the show reach a wider audience. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, long live the New Flesh.